This episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. You know, there are still some things we can't Google. I mean, you could try and Google your critical questions about HR, administration, and compliance, but there's just way too much at stake. You need to know you found the right answers. But in HR and payroll, the answers keep changing, and the questions never end. In Zenium's complete HR plus payroll service, you have a dedicated support team and they're backed by a larger team of more than 90 HR and payroll specialists who work together to make sure you can always find the answers to your questions. Schedule a call today with Zenium at ZeniumHR.com. We've all heard that saying, the elephant in the room. It's that phrase that we use when there's uncomfortable situations that we're avoiding. We're not talking about it, and that's why it's an elephant in the first place. So the elephant in the room is our inability to describe it, to talk about it, to identify it. So in today's episode of Transform Your Workplace, Sarah Noel Wilson gives insight into the research behind her new book, Don't Feed the Elephants. In this episode, you're going to learn what elephants keep creeping into your in-person and online meetings, how to address them, and how to create an elephant-free culture in your workplace. You're going to love this episode. It's one of my favorite conversations of the year. Connect with me on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram. I love hearing from listeners about how you're liking the show, what topics you want to hear about, all that good stuff. And if you'd be so kind, if you loved this episode or you like the show and you want to support us, please give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That's how people like you find the show and we are very appreciative of your support. Enjoy today's episode with Sarah Noel Wilson. Sarah, it is a pleasure to have you on Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Brandon. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, you've got a new book out. It's amazing. It's called Don't Feed the Elephants, Overcoming the Art of Avoidance to Build Powerful Partnerships. So the title of your book is Don't Feed the Elephants. And I think most people are familiar with the phrase the elephant in the room. Is this in reference to avoidance? Give me an example or explain why you named the book that way. Well, it's an expansion and uh, an exploration of the idea of the elephant in the room, right? We know that the elephant in the room happens when we aren't talking or acknowledging something. And what I became really curious about is what actually creates the elephant to begin with, right? Because sometimes we think about the elephant as a person or a thing. And, and while there's a conflict or a barrier, we need to talk about the elephant gets created because we are avoiding acknowledging or addressing whether that's with ourselves or with other people. So the idea of don't feed the elephant is when you are avoiding something that maybe you shouldn't, or that would be more important if we talked about it, it's like giving them a little peanut and, and feeding it. And so the idea is a play on that metaphor of, so don't feed the elephant, don't create it. How do we overcome that so that we can free it? Why do we call them elephants in the first place? I don't know. To be well, <laughs> so it's a Western metaphor that first showed up in a magazine article 
the first document, it was in the late 40s, early 50s. And I think that the the idea of the elephant is because it is big and it's it's right. heavy and it takes up a lot of space is the idea of where the the elephant in the room came from. But it's a it's a fairly Western yeah. concept that that's not that. Well, I say not that old because in my mind, the 50s weren't too terribly long ago. And then I realized, well, no, that's about 70 years ago. (laughs) That is a long time ago. What creates these elephants in the first place? You know, again, the elephant is created when there is a, a barrier, a harmful barrier to our success, whatever that may be. And we're not acknowledging it or addressing it. But so let's take it. Let's go a step back from that is it's really easy I think for people to say, oh, we just need to call it out. We just need to address it. We need to acknowledge it. And I became particularly fascinated in part because I would hear from so many clients, well, we took this class on crucial conversations, or we took this class on uh, having difficult conversations and people still aren't having it. And so then I was realizing that it's not Maybe it's not the tools. The tools are important. So I don't want to minimize that or the, the work that's been done by other people in this field. But I wanted to understand, well, why, why do we avoid it in the first place? And I think that, you know, what, what we're observing uh, and, and exploring is that there's a whole number of reasons why we might avoid. We might avoid because culturally we are raised in an environment where direct communication was seen as disrespectful. Maybe we are raised in a family or a a situation where we were potentially shut down for speaking up for ourselves. Uh, Maybe we don't have the skills. Maybe we don't feel safe. I have skills and I know how to navigate these conversations, but there are still moments where maybe I don't feel safe because of how the other person has historically responded or power dynamics, you know, and then add in trauma. Uh, and, and then also sometimes we avoid because we're protecting our power or our authority. So there's, there's a whole number of mm-hmm. reasons why we might avoid. So it isn't just as simple as, well, you just need to have the conversation. Right. Now. But I want people to get curious about, well, for them, where does that come yep. from? Well, I even think about like something as basic as let's say you had broccoli in your teeth and I noticed it and you're about to walk into a meeting. My brain tells me I should tell you before you walk into that meeting, but there's something that probably people would pause and say, I'm not going to do it because I don't want to embarrass them. Mm-hmm. But like, the alternative is they walk into a room and there's an elephant in the room and they're going to be embarrassed and they're not even going to know about it. So they're going to be embarrassed anyway. <laughs> but there was something that causes people to pause. They're like, it's about the way they're feeling about it. Like they're worried about being judged or something. At least that's where my head goes. Is that, am I thinking about it the right way? Yeah. Well, well, that's a great example. I mean, what does research say? Something like only 25 to 30% of people will tell you if you're if you have something in your teeth or your zippers down or you have lipstick <laughs> smeared or, I, I mean, it's a pretty small yeah. number. It makes me think of a personal story. My, my niece, who's now 15, but she was probably, I don't know, nine, nine at the time. She had something in her tooth. And I, I said, oh, hey, hey, Monica, you have something in your tooth. I just wanted to let you know. And I always look for little ant moments where I can go, do you know that only 30% <laughs> of people will tell you if you have something? And she's, she's so smart. And she was like, show me your teeth. <laughs> and then the rest of the night, she would always look at my teeth because she was so eager to be able to tell me I have something in my tooth. 
<laughs> but any, anyway, but so yeah. that's just a side anecdote. But but it ultimately it comes from a place of protection, right? And whatever that might be protecting, maybe that's protecting the relationship. But it always comes back to us. That's the thing is, even if you you sit there and go, well, I don't want to give them feedback because I don't want to hurt their feelings. The question I always invite people to think about is, and if you hurt their feelings, then what would that mean for you? Because I understand that you wouldn't want to harm somebody, and that is true. And there's always an element of, and then what would that mean for you? You know, is it a fear of retaliation? Is it a fear of uh, being excluded or not being a part of the group or whatever the case might be? And so when we're in a moment of avoidance, now the other thing I will say is that when we talk about avoidance, there are times when it may be appropriate or safer for us to not address something because it really is unsafe. Or maybe I'm in a situation where I'm choosing my battle, so to speak, right? So that's one of the things that I'm a big proponent of is I want us to be really curious about when we're avoiding from a place of default or a reaction to understand that. And then to be in an intentional choice if we're choosing not to move forward with a conversation, you know, maybe you sit there and you go, I'm taking care of my parents. I'm just so, so depleted. I don't have the energy for this. So I'm just, I'm choosing not to engage with it because it's just not where I want to put my energy right now. And there are times when the avoidance, again, coming from an intentional choice, which I, I would think of maybe not less of, of avoidance, but more of a choice to not engage in those moments is different. Yeah, that's fascinating. Have you ever had uh, in the past, Problems with avoidance or, you know, not addressing the elephant in the room and you're feeding the elephant. Oh my gosh, my whole life. <laughs> I mean, this is this is my love letter to my fellow avoiders. Yeah. Well, and you know, because growing up as a white woman in the Midwest, we were very much culturally conditioned to take care of other people, to nurture, to smooth over, to not advocate for ourselves, to not get too big for our britches. I mean, the list can go on. And so growing up in a, a larger cultural system where that wasn't reinforced. And then, you know, so then obviously that's true within my family system as well. Although that's that's shifted as we've all gotten older. But I feel like most of my adult life certainly was spent masterfully <laughs> avoiding talking about the hard stuff and certainly felt the consequences of that. I can imagine. I pulled a quote from your book. You you referenced Ed Catmull of Pixar and he, he wrote a book called The Creativity Inc. And this quote I thought was pretty powerful. I just want you to respond to it and I want you to tell listeners what it means to you. So the quote says, if there's more truth in the hallways than in meetings, you have a problem, end quote. What does that mean to you in, in terms of like this subject matter of your book? The elephant often emerges in the hallways. You know, even when I think about the work, when I'm working with clients or when we were in person, it was always on the breaks that the elephant would emerge because that's when people would come up and say, hey, Sarah, uh, I don't know if you know this. And it'd be real quiet. And they didn't want it. They didn't want people to see that they were talking to me. You know, and basically, when we think about creating strong cultures, strong teams from a psychologically safe perspective, if the truths aren't happening within the group, if we're not able to navigate disagreements, if we aren't able to ask tough questions, if we aren't able to give and receive feedback, and also and if we aren't able to be ourselves, our true selves, then we'll never be as successful as the teams that are able to do that. And so that idea, I love that quote of, if you have more truths in the hallway, there's real consequences to that. Sure is. That means you're having what you call the meeting after the meeting, right? Mm -hmm. 
Which, you know, like, I want to pause on that for a second, because one is the idea of, they call it flocking. Flocking is one of the first stress responses we can go to as humans, is if we experience some kind of stressful situation, we may flock to someone to validate our experience, to seek comfort. And so there is a a natural human biological function of that sort of meeting after the meeting of wanting to, you know, you you sort of, maybe you're sitting there going, did I see that? Did that really just happen? Right. Oh, it's a validation. Yeah. Yeah. Or, you know, it's a validation. Maybe it's a, I'm processing really strong emotions and I'm reaching out to my friend or colleague to say, Hey, help me think through this. And so, so there, there is this initial reaction that we as humans can have right in that flocking moment, they become problematic when we aren't ever moving past that to have the conversations we need to either again with ourselves or with other people. And if we aren't having, conversations, perhaps, and again, it's all situational, to check our understanding or our perspective. Hey, did I miss something? What was something I could have done differently? You know, there are times when before I have to have a really big, important conversation, I might talk through it with a couple people just because I I use that as a way to regulate my own emotions, to be able to strategize, to calm myself and to think about how I might approach it in a way that'll be more productive. In one of your workshops, and I think you referenced this later, somebody asked you why it's easier for them to talk about somebody behind their back. How did you respond to that? I love... I think I was speechless by their honesty. Because it's and true. It's, it, it is. Yeah. It's so easy to just to do it. It's because there's no risk. Right. There's zero risk to us. And sometimes, depending on the situation, it can make us feel powerful. You know, sometimes we might gossip or, or talk bad or criticize or you know, come from a place of contempt or whatever it might be, because we might be feeling powerless in the moment. And and it it can give us a sense of feeling power over. Um, Again, depending on what the conversation looks like, you know, if I'm talking to you and I'm being hypercritical of someone, there's some element of that, you know, which is different than perhaps exploring legit criticisms or feedback, things like that. But the risk is so much lower because if I were to share with you how I really felt that I might be a bad person or you might not like me anymore or it may get out, you know, early on in my career. I feel like this is something that I've I've worked really hard on is to really check my judgment and get curious with people. And, you know, and I'm, I'll am i be honest, my especially my early 20s, there was a lot of judgment. There was a lot of, you know, when you're in the know and you get to, you know, talk about someone or something that there was something gratifying. And, you know, I got burned. And, and rightfully so, I got burned, right? Something got back to someone. And I just, I remember writing a note to myself as a check saying, yeah. things that shouldn't be heard shouldn't be said. Right. You wrote something that like hit me square in the face, like, and it just like <laughs> gut punched too. Like you said, you don't get to decide if you're trustworthy, other people do. And I, I think about that in response to what you just said. It's like, you said something, it came back to somebody and it's just like that just erodes trust and maybe you didn't know you did it. And and some of these things that we're doing to avoid conflict, it's actually damaging us and the way people are perceiving us too. Yeah. Well, and there's two elements of that. So I want to expand on that because that's something that has expanded for me since writing the book is on one hand, it's that, yeah, that idea that 
the other people decide if we're trustworthy, right? They get to decide if we're safe. They get to decide. Now our behaviors can influence. You know, if I look at that situation, my behaviors completely sent a message that I wasn't trustworthy. Absolutely. And I had to own that because sometimes we can get so caught in the land of good intentions, right? Or no, I'm trustworthy. And it's, but when are you not? When, when do you show up in ways that aren't? Or somebody, maybe they have previous experiences that create a lens, whether that's lived experiences or from a place of trauma or whatever that might look like that may caution. The other side that I want to name, and, and I want to uh, give a shout out to my colleague Neha for pushing me on this, is she, she brought a really good point. She said, and sometimes people aren't viewed as trustworthy because of who they are. If you're somebody who's systemically marginalized, you might not be viewed as trustworthy, right? Yeah. You know, my 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 colleagues, my my black colleagues might not be viewed as trustworthy in the same way as maybe my white colleagues are. So there's a, there's another dimension to that that I'm digging into for myself that I I just want to name is yes. It's true that you don't get to decide if you're trustworthy from a place of control. Well, they both are. And our system also is set up to trust some people more than others. And we need to get curious about that. What are some signs that there are things we're avoiding? Let's let's stick with the workplace. I think yeah, because the audience is is mostly you know leaders and HR professionals, and they probably recognize some of the stuff. But what are, call out some of the signs that you would see? Well, it's so. The, I'm, I'm hesitating, not not because there's not, but yeah, because right. what it looks like virtually is very different oh, so than true. in the office. Yeah, right. Because in the office, there were real clear signs, right? You would see sometimes, maybe, doesn't mean it's always this what it means, but if you have a group that's normally really chatty and everyone gets really quiet, when I'm working with a group, I always look for the moments when people stop making eye contact with each other, and they all get really interested in their notes. So silence is always... Now, again, that doesn't mean that there's an elephant. And I think that's always an opportunity for us to get curious of, hey, what's what's not being said? You know, sometimes if, if a group gets silent, I like to get curious with that is, you know, what's what's not being said in the silence or what what is the silence telling us? You know, being mindful of noticing if you're seeing a lot of those conversations after the conversation, you know, after the meetings, right. after yeah, the yeah, meetings... Yeah. And, you know, side eye glances. And so what's tricky on virtual is that some of those tells, if you will, are much more hidden from the standpoint of I can direct message somebody. If I don't have my camera on, you can't tell if I'm engaged, rolling my eyes or whatever the case is. And I'm not advocating that everyone has to have their cameras on at all times because there's issues with that. But I can be direct messaging somebody and and nobody would see it. That is the complexity of the virtual too, is like you could be in a group meeting and then you're direct messaging people about whatever's happening in the meeting. That's it's very disturbing to me. It's well, and you know, and again, some of that is that human biology of that that flocking, but it right. also <laughs> the connection, the validation, all yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, and and it's interesting because what we've heard from people and what we've observed is that in some cases, the things that would cause elephants have on some level have gone away. There is a different kind of focus. There's a different kind of focus on the tasks. There's a different kind of just the structure of it. You don't always have the meetings after the meetings, right? You might not have the time to (laughs) to spend on this because we have to get things done in a different way. But then the flip side is there might be other elephants that come up that might be more difficult, which is for the leaders who are listening to this, you know, what I would tell them is don't assume that it's not there. 
don't assume. Like I would rather, instead of assuming, oh, we have a super safe environment and, and I'm a really trustworthy leader, I would actually rather you assume you don't. I would rather you go, we're not as safe as we could be. What else could we be doing? To be really intentional about having conversations and normalizing talking about this and and as a leader, and this is part of why later in the book, I spend so much time on receiving the elephant, is because if you're in the position of formal power and authority, how you respond in those moments of disagreements, of people giving you feedback, sets a huge tone for how safe it is for other people and in the future, or what you're willing to tolerate and how people respond to each other. That's a great point. I think earlier on in the book, and I, I wish I would have wrote this down, but I think you were leading like some sort of workshop or something. And I think somebody made a comment about how the workplace wasn't like psychologically safe and it was quiet. Like people did not respond to it, I think. And then you took a break, came back. And I think you, maybe you asked the question or something. Do you remember that story? And maybe you can just set the stage for that and just how, you know, you're able to kind of flip it around and get people talking about it after they agreed and recognized it. But I thought that was a really good story. Yeah, that was a provocative moment for me, you know, because I, you know, I talk about these things with some level of, you know, emotional detachment and, and intellectual exploration. But the reality is in the moment, I'm making the choice to go. Hmm. <laughs> this is the first time I'm working with this client. They've brought me in for a three-hour workshop, so it's not like we have a ton of time. We have no planned engagements after this. So, because sometimes, right, that's a decision I'm making of yeah. when do I push and when do I? Yeah, you're just you're gonna throw a hail mary right here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and I, I mean, I do, <laughs> I do believe that I need to be willing to be fired at any moment. Yeah, that's true. And my job isn't to protect me and, and our relationship so that I can make money. My job is to show up and, and be what you need me to be. And that might not be comfortable for me or for you. And so certainly early on, but this, but this particular group is fascinating because we were actually, we were talking about feedback and the, and the importance of thinking about how do we receive feedback and what are the, you know, our amygdala and how does that get in our way? And we, I just, as a throwaway, was talking about psychological safety. And I said, so for example, what do you all do to create a psychologically safe environment? I don't know this group other than the 90 minutes we've spent together. And it was just crickets. And I talk about this, but that didn't necessarily tell me it wasn't, but it was a data point to get curious with. Again, elephants always rear their heads in my sessions anyway on breaks. As soon as the break came over, no fewer than three or four different people grabbed me, pulled me aside, said, oh, that was interesting. I said, I, is it? I don't know your group. What was interesting about it to you? What did that tell you? And they're like, oh, no, we don't have psychological safety, not how you described it. And then it even got to a point where, you know, somebody was sitting next to somebody and I said, well, what do you think? And they go, I don't feel comfortable telling you. Wow. Wow. So immediately you're thinking, I, I've got to address this with the group, right? Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, on one hand, I'm going, I really do need to address this. And then I'm also going, and I only have them for 90 minutes before they're going to go golfing. And so I also have to be conscious of, because part of my job, and, and I would argue is the job of anybody in a formal position of power and authority is we're regulating the heat. And sometimes we do need to turn the heat up, but I don't know this group well enough to know how far can I turn the heat up. And so I talked to the HR partner and I said, hey, listen, here's what's happened. We can keep going. We can keep going like we're going, or we can take a moment. We can get really curious about this. And she's like, I think we should get curious about it. And what was so beautiful is I offered it up as, hey, I just want to share 
what happened. And I just want to invite all of us to get curious about it. Like we're not trying to solve it. And I, I was able to introduce concepts like getting on the balcony and, and checking in with themselves to be able to speak to it. And what happened was once they were given, and I hate to use this word, but once they were given permission and, you know, and I credit the CEO at the time and the leaders, because I think that they did a really good job of listening and holding space for people. And then my job is to role model. Okay. Yeah. This, does anybody else feel how uncomfortable? Can we just check in physically? If we're talking about uncomfortable, Will Pemble, he is a, a consultant up in New York and we were just chatting last week. And one of his rules is he always tells people if it's important, it probably won't be comfortable. So it, it ended up being this really interesting conversation because as they were talking, one of the things I was observing is here's this group of 22 people, maybe 40% women, 60% men. And the first seven people who spoke were all men. So I got curious about that. Not, not as any judgment, but I just said, hey, I just want to make an observation. We've only been hearing from the men in this group. We haven't heard from the women. I don't know where or how this shows up in other meetings. I think it's worth getting curious about. And then what ended up evolving was this beautiful conversation about the people who were new to the team navigating the legacy of the founder who had passed away a few years prior. And they didn't have a relationship with that founder. So they're like, sometimes we don't know what to say when they say, oh, we want to do it like so-and-so did. Like, well, I don't, I don't know him. So it, it opened up this beautiful conversation. And then we were able to reflect and go, okay, so what allowed that to happen? Because that actually becomes our roadmap. Because I want you to have these conversations without me. Right. And it, what's interesting about that story is it sounds like the, the, the leader, the top leaders inside that room were open to it. And so uh, to me, that was like a first step in changing behavior around calling out those elephants in the room. And creating a psychologically safe environment. Like they, they went with it and they. Yeah, they weren't comfortable. Yeah. They, <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't comfortable <laughs> for them. And I don't know if I would say they were eager. Oh, right. But I think they recognized it was important. Yeah. And hung back a bit and afterwards got the. That was probably the most transformative work we've ever done as a team. That's fantastic. You know, to talk about that. What are the different types of elephants that, that show up? In your book, you talk about there's, there's different types of elephants, and maybe just name a few of those if you don't yeah. know. <clears throat> We've come up with some more since the book. Has. You have? Oh, we, <laughs> need a, we need a part two already. You just released your book yeah. like a week ago. <laughs> so, you know, I was trying to remember where, where this idea came from. I, I just... I, I don't know where I came up with the idea, but I wanted to help people have language to identify the avoidance. And sometimes, depending on the situations, if we can use language that's a little lighter, can make it easier for us to step in the fire together. It's not to minimize the seriousness. It's not to negate uh, the importance or the harm by any means, but it can make it easier for people to try it on is what I found, right? And instead of just going, oh, well, we avoid, but suddenly when you go, yeah, so maybe you've created an avoid event and people kind of smile and go, oh shit. <laughs> I think I am an avoid event, right. you know? So yeah, so the avoid event is the main genus. It's a main species. That's what gets created. The imagifent is when we spend time imagining 
making assumptions instead of validating or clarifying. It's like the the email you get from your boss saying, hey, could, yep. could, do you have five minutes to, to chat? And you're like, oh, shit, I'm going to get fired. Right, 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 right. <laughs> I, I always say, like, that's the best example of showing our stress responses because no, no one in that moment is going smiling at their coworkers and saying, this is the day I'm it shooting my guns up. Like, here we go, folks. But yeah, so the imagine event, the blame event, which is when we spend more time blaming someone than we do reflecting on why were we frustrated? What are we not getting? And also perhaps like, what's the role that we've played? The deflect event shows up in a couple of different ways. The deflect event might show up because essentially we're deflecting from having the conversation. That could be the classic, I'm fine. It's fine. That could be somebody using sarcasm to deflect from the seriousness of the topic. That also can look like trying to jump too quickly to solve a problem that's uncomfortable instead of taking time to really diagnose what's going on. Then the last one, the nudge event, and, and the nudge event is when we might indirectly try to call something, like we might try to call attention to something. It won't be direct, but it'll sort of, well, maybe we should... What do you think about, and the thing with the nudge event is sometimes, especially for those of us who are historic avoiders, that can be an effective way to start. Yeah. But if we're not getting what we need then, then that, that's when it becomes a nudge event. The, the one that we, we've identified, I think, is that we're calling it the pretend event. So something harmful happens and we're all just going to wait and pretend that didn't happen. Oh, we're just going to... You know, you think about that with like family dynamic. Hope it like blows over or something. Like. Yeah, we're just, yep. I know, I know whatever. Joe said something harmful and we're just gonna, it'll settle and we're just gonna pretend that it didn't happen. Yeah. Well, I get that because like you said something earlier that I, I resonate with. It's like, I don't want to spend the time and the energy on this. It's like, is it that big of a deal? And I think you just have to weigh those risks with conflict management and avoidance and stuff like that. And I could see where... You just hope it blows over and, and sometimes it does, but you got to pick and choose your battles, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, so, and maybe I know I've found myself in situations where I go, and again, there are some things that are egregious enough that now we're going to have that conversation up front, but there maybe there's something and you go, I know that they have a lot going on in their world. I'm just going to tuck this away, not in a resentful way, but it's a data point. And if this happens again, then I'm going to have the conversation. I know that has happened a number of times, either people having conversations with me or vice versa, where it's, hey, this isn't the first time this has happened, so we need to talk about it. And it's not the, you're kind of holding on to the kitchen sink, so to speak, and like, and then everything comes out. But it is just, it's a, it's a conscious choice to say, I just want to kind of see where things fall. And if, if it happens again, then, I, then I'm definitely going to speak up. And then you just got to make sure that you do. And again, that the, the avoidance isn't just because of default. It's not easy. You know, that's no, it's the not. So much of this is about recognizing it, I think, and the patterns, the behaviors. And then at some point, you've got to take action in terms of like freeing the elephants, as you call it. So what, what are some of those steps where like once we sort of recognize that there's an elephant in the room, we got to do something about it. What, like what are the steps to, to freeing it? Yeah. Well, a, a couple of things I'll say real quickly is we can free an elephant and not resolve the conflict. I don't believe that the elephant is the conflict, so to speak. The elephant is the avoidance, yeah, right? Okay. So if, if so, I do believe we can free the elephant and not get the results we want or hope or move in the direction that we want. But, uh, but if we can free it for ourselves, that's valuable. If we can speak up, if we can 
Yeah, I can't control how other people show up, but if I, I can control how I show up. So that's one thing I want to say. But the way that we like to approach it, depending on the situation, and again, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach to conversations because humans are complex and relationships are complex and, and situations, right, are external factors and influence us and all of that. But the first place we always like to go is to get curious with ourselves. So we call it the curiosity first approach to get curious with ourselves about what is it about the situation that's frustrating me or, and, and to be able to name it more explicitly than just, oh, I'm mad at, at Tina because she did this or this. Well, what was it about that? That was so triggering to me. You know, I had a situation where I had made an observation to a leadership team I was working with, and it really caused a trigger response and one of the leaders, you know, it was a, it was a gender observation and it really triggered him. And so, so what happened is that, you know, I became the target of his frustration, which it's fine if he was frustrated with something like that's fine. Some of the behaviors weren't necessarily productive, but one of the things he was willing to work on with me is to get curious about. So what was it about that? That was so triggering to you. What came up for you? What assumptions were you making? What value did I step on? Right? Like, so that we can potentially have that conversation. And sometimes we can free an elephant just by getting curious with ourselves of, of maybe it's recognizing and going, yeah, you know what? I know that I know that Brandon is just very action-oriented guy. And I know that moving quickly is important to him. It's not important to me. We may need to figure out how we work together on this, but instead of being frustrated by it, I can come from a place of acceptance. Poof, the elephant goes away. Or maybe I recognize that I played a role. And that's part of getting curious with ourselves isn't just understanding our needs or our values, but it's also understanding, again, depending on the situation, what role did I play in this? And then where do I go from there? And then you know, one of the things in working with people in employee relation issues for years as a leader, and then when I was a part of the HR team at my last company, is I rarely saw the practice of getting curious about the other person. Mm, yeah. And that's not to excuse the behavior. And that, and I wouldn't ask somebody to get curious if they were, say, you know, the a recipient of a harassment or something really overtly harmful, but just to consider that that person is showing up in a way that makes sense to them. I, I might not agree with it, mm-hmm. but if I can just, and, and the goal isn't to, to tell their story and to make more assumptions, but it's just to prime ourselves that, yeah. well, they have a perspective on the situation too. And how do I, how do I hold space for that? Yeah. And then, you know, I always say when your curiosity hits a wall, then you maybe need to have a conversation and then yeah. get curious with them. Something that was so interesting to me that you really helped clarify is what an elephant actually is. And I always thought it was like a person or a thing, but what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it sounds like the elephant is actually just the avoidance, your inability to discuss it or be curious about it or take it head on. And so freeing the elephant doesn't mean you're going to solve the problem. It just means that you're, you're willing to be curious and not just do the avoidance thing. You're, you're actually taking it head on, but there may not be a solution. Yeah. Right. There are some situations that are incredibly complicated. You know, we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion. When we talk about reimagining the workforce, when we talk about how do we create hybrid, it's systemic, it's complex, and it doesn't mean that we shouldn't and can't navigate it, but it may not get resolved in a single moment or a single conversation. I mean, that's one of the things that even when we talk about challenges within a relationship is, you know, more than likely those challenges didn't happen in a single moment and they probably aren't going to get resolved in a single conversation. And that expansion 
And that's my, you know, I'm taking liberties if I'm playing on that metaphor because I think so often it gets used as a blaming mechanism instead of recognizing that. Because if you had an issue with me and you said, hey, Sarah, you said something back there that I don't know what your intention was, but boy, the impact was, I just, I feel really hurt and disrespected by what you said. If you and I have that conversation, that moment still happened, but there's no elephant there because we're actually talking about it. Say people are making the steps to change culturally around like freeing the elephants, right? But maybe there's some people that just are not willing to change and they're still doing the, you know, talking behind people back and, and all that. And they're just not, they're not helping the culture in any sort of way. What, what do you do with people like that? It depends on what role I have. <laughs> and the reason I say that is if there are people that are showing up in ways that are harmful to your culture, then you either need to coach them or, or move them out. And the problem is we tolerate brilliant jerks far yes, too often. I agree. And, you know, I was, saw Adam Grant speak once and he talked about how the cost of keeping somebody who's harmful to your culture is three times more expensive than bringing somebody in who, who can help expand and build on your culture. And it is tricky. And, it, and, and I will say that I'm not Pollyanna in the sense of there are times when the other person isn't ready, doesn't want to, doesn't have the skills, right? And they have their own their own challenges they're bringing to the table. And what can happen is when you start to, this is definitely what has happened for me in my journey, is as I've been able to build more honest relationships, to have those conversations where somebody will say, even just as simple as, I disagree with that. And to be open to that and receive it, when you experience that, it's almost harder <laughs> when you're navigating with somebody who's not willing to dance in that or who's shut down to it. But the other thing that I would say is, you know, again, depending, depending on the situation, and I quote Marshall Goldsmith and his, it's, it's a simplified model, but I think it's a powerful framework to go when you're in a situation that's not moving the way that you want or the way that would be most productive or healthy for you, you can accept it. You can avoid it or you can adjust it. And it's really heartbreaking when people are in a work situation in particular where maybe they work for somebody who's harmful or they work on a team where there isn't accountability and it's having a huge impact on their mental and physical health. And it, it is heartbreaking when they have to be the one to leave and take the stress of me looking for another job or moving out or doing whatever, when you wish the accountability was on the people who are causing the issue. But a lot of time our system isn't set up for that. Yeah, as, as you know, the, the theme of this podcast is transform the workplace. And basically what we're trying to do with this podcast is give people the tools to make workplaces better, have a great, uh, safe culture, one, you know, one that's obviously psychologically safe, happy, healthy employees. And I feel like with this topic, if you can give people the tools the verbiage, the language, the way the way we can call out the way we're avoiding, and I think you do it with the naming of the elephants. It's these are these, this is what, how you can transform a culture, and that's why I love that you kind of wrapped up your book this way. And just in terms of like, how do you create a culture that like where it's ongoing? You create the behaviors that you want and anything you wanted to say about like how do you transform a culture with what you're talking about it won't happen in a training <laughs> yeah, i agree with that you know yeah. i mean that's and i say that as somebody who <laughs> our businesses we, we do train they, that can plant seeds and can give you tools but it literally happens one conversation at a time I again agree. with yourself yeah. or with other people and and if you you know have a team where maybe the distrust is higher than you would like it's not going to 
like more than likely it, it won't get resolved all at once with the whole group in a kumbaya way it's going to be these little moments of creating bridges and and healing and repairing relationships and the thing that i'll say is if we do not have the skills or the willingness to have conversations about the smaller moments, the, the sandpaper moments, the right, like smaller regrettable events or the disagreements, then how the hell are we ever going to have conversations about the bigger stuff related to culture? And so my hope, my hope is, is that this creates a little bit of a stepping stone to get that, that muscle started so that we can get to a point where we can start having bigger conversations around around safety, around inclusion, around toxic workplaces, around leadership, around transforming the workplace. We aren't able to explore those if, if people, especially those who hold the power, are unwilling or unable to get really curious about why do they feel the way they do? How are they showing up? What role are they playing? What's the impact they really want to make? Are they making it? And so that's that's part of my hope is that this becomes a, a little bit of a stepping stone to building those muscles so that we can talk about the bigger stuff. Well said. I, I could not agree more. Sarah, you've been so generous with your time and I congratulate you on the launch of this book. And it's such a good book. I really, I, I mean, I told you offline, I'm going to do a Zenium book club on on this. And so we're going to be discussing this book within Zenium. And, and I'm really excited about that because I think there's, a, there's so many good tools in this book that can really transform the culture for the better. So congratulations on the book. Thanks for the time. And where can people learn more about you, pick up the book, whatever you want to point people to, it'd be great. Yeah. I, you know, I think that the center hub of all information is our website, sarahnellwilson.com. But I will say that even though my name is on the marquee, just know that we have an incredible team that supports this work. I have incredible colleagues. And so not only can you connect with me, but you can connect with all of them. If you're interested in the book, you can purchase it anywhere books are sold. Obviously, a lot of people head over to Amazon, but you can, you know, get it through your local bookstore or Barnes and Noble. And and then connect with me on social media. I'm very active on Twitter in particular, but uh, my DMs are always open and, and love to, to hear and connect with fellow humans. Can I just give one little shout out? Your illustrations in the book are fantastic. And that's what makes it really fun and who did your illustrations i think it's somebody really close to you it's you know my (laughs) husband so so he yeah and just if i may a quick story about that Uh, i you know the intention was not oh he's an artist so let's have him draw stuff the intention behind the illustrations was my friend shadley told me when i first started writing and was struggling. He said, write the book you would want to read. And what I realized is it wasn't just the content, but it was also the design. And as somebody who has a neurodiverse brain with my ADHD, reading sometimes can be a challenge or sustaining my focus on reading can be a challenge because books tend to be very text heavy, long paragraphs, and not a lot of visual breaks, visual breaks. And so the intention with the illustrations, uh, as well as other design components, was to really craft this book for a neurodiverse brain to make it easier. And then, and then it just, it grew from there. What started at like, oh, we'll probably do one illustration a chapter. We, <laughs> we just kept coming up with ideas. And uh, my favorite, my favorite illustration is the deflective fit. So for those of you who are listening to this, get the book, go check it out and just look at the little puppet, elephant puppet. It gets me every time. Love it. Sarah Noel Wilson, thank you for being on the Transform Your Workplace podcast. Thanks for having me, Brandon. Thank you.